Hi, and welcome to episode 14 of Cavalier Cast, The Civil War in Words, a podcast which looks at everything and anything to do with the War of the Three Kingdoms. Apart from being fascinated by the wars since I was 10 years old, I began this podcast to raise the profile of them, quite simply because it is an absolutely overlooked period of history, in TV and film especially, but also in books. Despite the period having all the drama you could wish for and events that were pivotal to shaping our country, it's sad to hear that so often publishers are wary of the Civil War. Some even refuse to consider it. They put this down to the fact that there isn't the interest, yet by not showcasing the history, this reason becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Giles Christian, who wrote two novels set in the Civil War, told me at the Newark Book Festival that although he'd love to write another, publishers are hesitant. Yet Giles receives regular letters from readers asking for more Civil War novels. So my hope is that you find this podcast enjoyable, whether you're new to the era of history or a veteran. But to help raise interest in this fascinating period, please can you discuss this podcast with anyone you feel might be interested, or leave a rating or share it on social media. Anyway, back to the episode. Leander Delisle returns to the podcast to discuss an intriguing mystery involving the crown jewels, the Battle of Naseby, and two kings, Charles I and Henry VI. Exactly how could one small golden object, discovered by a metal detectorist, link all of these together and shine new light on some fascinating periods in our history? Leander is a historian, writer and broadcaster. She's written six books about the Tudors, one about the life of Charles I, and her current work in progress examines Charles's queen, Henrietta Maria. So welcome back to Cavalier Cast, Leander. It's lovely to talk to you again. It's lovely to be on again. And we're chatting today about the Golden King, an exquisite figure that was found near the site of the Battle of Naseby. Um, so can you describe the piece? Well, it's a small, uh, solid gold and rond boss enamelled figure of Henry VI. And we can see it's Henry VI because he's standing on a spotted antelope, which was his, uh, his, his symbol. Uh, rond boss enamelling uh, dates usually from the 15th century uh, and um, is extremely rare, exquisite work, of which there are very few surviving examples from this period. Sounds very beautiful. Uh, and who founded and where? When, sorry. Who founded and when? Um, well, it was found um, by a man called Kevin Duckett, who's a metal detectorist. And he'd been doing his metal detecting for sort of 20 years. And he'd just um, been given permission to go on this new farm. Uh, and um, within, I think, half an hour, he had um, he had he had found this figure. It, it sort of emerged from a sort of clod of earth, like a present. He says, uh, in uh, on this sort of sunny day in 2017, uh, and um, he declared it promptly as treasure. Uh, but it's been it's still it's still being researched all this time, so it hasn't really come out in public yet. Uh, and he did some research himself, and then he asked me to do further research, and that's what we're really come to discuss today: the sort of things we've uh, discovered. Mm. That's it. I mean, metal detectorists as well. I think um, their dream is to discover gold. But wow, what a piece to actually discover as well. Um, Unique. And the the site of where it was found, so it is near the Battle of Naseby, as it said. So 
Nearsby was a key encounter in the War of the Three Kingdoms. So can you summarise the outcome of that battle? The outcome of that battle was that Charles I uh, was uh, completely uh, defeated. Uh, He fled. He was very nearly killed during the battle. And uh, he uh, fled the battlefield and was very nearly captured. In fact, uh, some of Cromwell's cavalry actually got ahead of him. And uh, he had to gallop through uh, these uh, horsemen. Uh, and uh, he dropped his pistols as he did so. He had to ch- actually had to charge through them. Uh, he was pursued all the way uh, to uh, Leicester from Naseby. Other cavaliers following him, many of them killed at a place called Bloody Man's Ford. Uh, and then, I suppose, the worst incident in the aftermath of this battle, and, the, and by the way, the aftermath and the pursuit went on for six hours, um, covering 13 miles, was the horrendous massacre of the women in the baggage train at Farndon Field, uh, where about 400 women were killed and others were horribly uh, mutilated with the whore's mask, where their noses were cut off and their mouths slashed uh, with a sword into a kind of hideous grin. And the excuse of the parliamentarian forces was that they were Irish whores. In fact, um, they were neither Irish uh, nor whores, although doubtless there were one or two of those following an army. Um, one of them, for example, was an old lady who, who who used to arrange the flowers in the royal palaces, and she was killed along with one of her grandsons. Truly awful, awful. Um, and, and the significance of Bloody Man's Ford you've mentioned there, um, can, can you just um, give us a bit more detail of where exactly the item was found? Well, the fine site, this is what I think is is fascinating. Um, the fine site is south of Bloody Man's Ford and east of East, Far- of, um, east Farndon. So um, it really is absolutely on the flight path of um, much of some of the baggage. Um, many of the middling sort were, were, were on wagons full of riches, we're told. Um, so it, it is absolutely on that flight path, on the flight path of many of the king's army, many of the cavaliers and and the women in the baggage train. And amongst the things caught in the baggage, infamously, was, of course, his correspondence with the uh, queen, which was used in a, very successfully as parliamentary propaganda against him. Yeah, uh, and this is where the potential links to the civil war and even to Charles I himself begin, isn't it? And can you tell me a little bit more about Henry VI, um, his sainthood, and how that huge following developed after his death. Henry VI um, was was the son of Henry V, the great victor of Agincourt. But he was a very different king from Henry V, uh, where Henry V won France, Henry VI lost France. He suffered from mental illness, and his sort of weaknesses as a ruler triggered what we know as the Wars of the Roses. He was uh, eventually murdered in the tower on the orders of his Yorkist rival, Edward IV. Uh, And then to Edward IV's horror, um, the English people in their wisdom decided that although Henry VI had been a failed king, he was a good man, and they decided he was a saint. They declared him a popular saint, and uh, they started praying to him. And um, he was uh, supposed to be responsible for many miracles. Uh, one of which was a man who was being hanged unfairly, um, prayed to Henry VI, and Henry VI apparently 
put his hand um, between the rope and the man's neck and, uh, and, and saved his life. And that was one of the miracles. Um, when Edward IV died and Richard III became king, Edward IV's brother, he was so concerned about the cult, he moved the body of Henry VI from his original burial place in Chertsey Abbey to uh, Windsor, to the Royal Chapel at Windsor, to try and take control of the cult. But then he, in turn, of course, was killed at the Battle of Bosworth by the first Tudor king, Henry VII. And this is really where the story of this little girl figure takes off. It's marked at the bottom, S.H. for St. Henry. So we know it postdates um, Henry VI's death. We know it's something to do with this cult of Henry VI. Now, Henry Tudor had no blood right um, to the English crown. He was of illegitimate Lancastrian descent. And so what he did is he said that his half-uncle, Henry VI, the saintly Henry VI, had um, prophesied his rule, uh, which meant that it was kind of divinely ordained. And so he encouraged the cult of Henry VI. And it became enormously popular, became the most popular pilgrimage site in England at Windsor, more popular even than Beckett, at Canterbury, which was the third most popular pilgrimage site in Europe. So it was like sort of Benidorm. <laughs> and um, and uh, people, when they arrived there, they would, you know, buy their sort of tourist tat, um, which would be a kind of, you know, cheap um, lead alloy badge of a figure of Henry VI to say, you know, I was here kind of thing. Um, now, the British Museum have suggested that this gold figure could be a pilgrimage badge, um, although we're not sure how likely that is, bearing in mind that it's solid gold and with this wrong boss enameling, it seems a rather superior badge, um, very superior indeed. And there are other possibilities. So, for example, um, in the chapel, there were many relics to Henry VI, his, his hat, for example, which people would put on to cure their headaches. And relics were kept in reliquaries, which were sort of beautiful works of art. Um, and sometimes they would have figures of the particular saint on them. So, for example, in the, in the Met, the um, Metropolitan Museum of New York, there's a figure of St. Catherine, um, gold and rhombos enameling. And it's possible that this figure of Henry VI is that. It was attached to a reliquary. And it has a thing at the back which shows it was attached to something. Mm. Or it could be part of a miniature devotional altar. And if it is one of these things, it's a very rare survival because um, after the Reformation, well over 90% of all religious art in this country was destroyed. So we have almost nothing of this sort uh, left and certainly nothing left from the tomb of Henry VI and his relics. Uh, apart from, I think, a, a, a metal box for putting sort of money in when you arrived. Um, that's, I think that's the only thing that's left uh, now at, at Windsor from that. Um, but it was Kevin then who discovered a, a, an even more interesting possibility. Yeah, that, that's right. And we will come to the uh, that one uh, in a little while. So how long did Henry's, uh, the, the veneration of Henry last? How long did this major pilgrimage site go on for? Well, right up until up until the up until the Reformation, um, and um, Henry VIII, even after the Reformation, still felt some attachment to Henry VI. Interestingly, uh, so for example, at his funeral, um, the one they had all the sort of 
things that they'd had at funerals of previous kings, images of the Trinity, of St. George, of the Virgin. And they had one new standard, uh, and that was the standard of Henry VI, Henry the Saint. Uh, so um, I think the fact that he was such an important figure in the Tudor family story uh, still held good. And um, the tomb itself uh, survived, um, becoming increasingly kind of crumbling and the relics disappeared, but it survived until about 1611 when it seems to have been cleared away. Uh, and at that point, um, you know, the cult of saints was long over. Uh, King James, um, the first Stuart king who was on the throne in 1611, referred to uh, Henry as a weak, silly king. Uh, he was no longer very much was now just associated with failed kingship rather than with sainthood. You mentioned that um, the British Museum had some uh, what they describe as pilgrim badges, um, but as you say, they are absolutely different, aren't they? They're base metal um, with none of the decoration of this one. Um, so, how rare is is the Golden King in terms of its decoration? Extremely rare. Um, the British Museum has a, a badge called the Dunstable Swan, which is associated with Henry V. Um, there is another example uh, of a virgin that was attached to a, a reliquary, which is in the V&A. Um, I mean, there, it's, it's just as rare as hen's teeth, really. Mm. And this is probably a good time now to take a look at the Tudor crowns. So, I mean, those Tudors get everywhere, don't they? Even under Cavalier yeah, cast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid. But I mean, there is a, there is a very strong, I mean, because the crown, which we're going to move on to, was associated with both. But yes, we'll, so we'll start with the Tudors. <laughs> so can you tell me a, 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 about the Tudor crown itself? So a bit of a description about that. Okay, so the Tudor crown, this crown, the state crown, which also belonged to um, King James and to Charles I, uh, they both also wore it. The state crown of England was pearl, covered in with gold, with pearls and precious stones. Um, and the first description of it was written during the reign of Henry VIII. It may have been made for Henry VII, was, but written during the reign of Henry VIII, 1521. And it describes it as having three figures of Christ, um, a uh, virgin and child and a figure of St. George also on it. But then uh, at the end, well, actually when Henry VIII died in 1547, there was another inventory and the description is slightly different. The three figures of Christ are now described as three kings. Now, historic royal palaces have uh, made a replica of this king, of this crown, I'm sorry, um, and they believe that the three kings uh, were um, the three saint kings of England, St. Edmund, Edward the Confessor, and Henry VI. So uh, this figure of Henry VI that Kevin found could be um, from the Tudor state crown. And there were good reasons for changing the figures of um, Christ to three kings, because what I discovered in my research was that uh, during the reigns of the Tudors, the household regulations were changed. So during the reign of Henry VI, he would wear his state crown on six or seven holy days a year, whereas uh, during the reign of Henry VIII, he would wear it uh, only for Epiphany, which is, of course, when the Magi, the three kings, visit Christ. Mm, right, that that's really fascinating, isn't it? So, 
Um, King Charles I was, as you say, portrayed with uh, the crown on a, a number of occasions. Uh, how did that differ between the portraits? Well, so Charles inherited the crown, as indeed had his father James before him, and he would wear it uh, for the opening of um, Parliament. Um, and at his very first Parliament in 1625, he's described as doffing it to MPs uh, like um, a man doffing his hat, i.e. showing them a sign of respect. Uh, but of course, his relationship with his Parliament uh, went sort of downhill from there. And um, in 1629, um, he essentially broke with Parliament for what would turn out to be 11 years uh, and had 11 years of personal rule. Now, a couple of years later, in uh, 1631, he was painted by Daniel Mittens with the uh, Tudor crown, the state crown, as it now was. And this is the crown uh, on which um, historic royal palaces have based their replica, which is at Hampton Court. And uh, you can see it beside him. And at the front, you can see the virgin and child, as was described in the 1547 inventory. But then um, I um, um, looked to find other images of this crown, and there was one done by Van Dyck uh, near the end of the um, period of personal rule, um, not quite at the end, in, but in, in 1630, uh, 1639, when he's about to go to war uh, with the Scots, who are complaining that the um, religious reforms he wants to impose on Scotland are too popish. And there's a picture by Van Dyck, and it, the, the crown is painted from the back. And you can see it's been cut down, probably because you know his head was a lot smaller than Henry VIII's. Uh, and so it's quite an ugly view. Um, but you can't see the Virgin, and you can't see three kings. Uh, maybe because he didn't want to be seen as too popish, and these are all the popish symbols. Um, so it's possible that these three kings had been removed before the Civil War broke out in 1642, before the English Civil War broke out in 1642. Mm, such a small act, isn't it? But it tells you so much. Uh, yes, so, indeed. And as you say, historic royal palaces reconstructed the Tudor crown, um, the state crown. Um, and what are the similarities between the historic royal palace figures um, and the golden king, which Kevin found? It's extremely similar. Um, same size, same sort of fixing, um, as far as one can judge on the back. Um, it's 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 very similar. You could take one off and put the other on very easily. And the historic royal palaces have got a, a YouTube video on their website about how they constructed the crown, so you can see the the, the figures there. Um, That's right. That theirs obviously has um, sort of enamelling. The enamelling on the original figure found by Kevin uh, is largely worn off. You can still see uh, traces of red um, enamelling on the on the on the body and and green enamelling on the bottom. Uh, you can also see actually that um, if you look at pictures of uh, which are will be posted are on posted now on my website um, leanderdelisle.com, you can see that. Kevin's uh, gold king is 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 a much is much finer quality. It's 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 incredible quality, mm. um, and it's in in its well. Have a look at it and see. <laughs> <laughs> and and why do you think um, historic royal palaces chose Henry the Sixth and the Saint Kings? Bit of a guess, wasn't it? At the, the I kings? think it's a bit. Yes, it's. I think it's basically a guess. I mean, they say. Um, I think they. I think they argue that uh, it's a sort of Henry the Eighth showing his 
superiority over the church, his, the, you know, that you know, he's sort of in line, the line of these saint kings, which seems to me a bit unlikely because, you know, he wasn't actually, apart from Henry VI, he wasn't that enamored of the other saint kings. I mean, the, 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 the tombs of the shrine of St. Edmund and the tomb of Edward the Confessor uh, were both, you know, badly treated uh, during, you know, after the Reformation. But it is quite possible that these three kings had been put on before uh, 1533 when when Henry VIII uh, broke with Rome because he was a very pious uh, Catholic before, uh, up to that point. Um, and that's why he was made defender of the faith, ironically. So just to summarise, there are a couple of possibilities of what the Golden King could be. On the one hand, we have a pilgrim badge which someone could have picked up when they visited Henry's tomb. However, due to the exquisite quality of the Golden King, you know, it do, as you say, it does seem of too high a quality for a simple pilgrim's badge. It could also be a reliquary or part of Henry's shrine, which, as you mentioned earlier, images of the saints were often used to decorate their shrines. And by 1611, Henry's was in disarray. Could be part of a mini devotional altarpiece, or finally, it could be part of the state crown itself, where the three figures of Christ were replaced by those of three kings. But there are numerous possibilities there, um, and there does seem to be a few links between the Golden King and Naseby, even King Charles I himself, doesn't there? Charles could have been wearing it. I mean, it's it's, it's difficult mm. to know. I mean, I, I'm not aware of Charles ever mentioning Henry VI. Um, he was, of course, a very keen reader of Shakespeare. Um, but there is uh, one connection uh, which was suggested by no less a figure than yourself, <laughs> uh, which, I thought, <laughs> which I thought was very interesting. You mentioned, you mentioned to me that Henry Hammond, Charles's chaplain, had been born at uh, Chertsey Abbey, uh, which is where um, Henry VI was originally buried. Um, and that's indeed the case. And um, then he was educated at Eton, um, as you reminded me, um, which was founded by Henry VI. And I do think that's a very intriguing connection because he was very close to Charles at this time. He'd been in Oxford with him. Um, and indeed, after you know the disaster of Naseby and when Charles was imprisoned, he asked to have Hammond with him at Holdenby House. And he also... Um, um, actually did succeed in, in having Hammond with him uh, when he was imprisoned at Carisbrook Castle. Um, and I wonder if Hammond encouraged him to see some connection, uh, perhaps something to do with, for example, the miracle uh, that uh, Henry was said to have performed when he saved a man from being hanged unfairly and wrongly. Because what we do know, one of the things we know about Charles I is that he believed very firmly and passionately that um, God was punishing him. The civil war and eventually his execution, his trial and execution, were God's punishment on him for signing the death warrant of an innocent man, as he saw it. That was Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Strafford. And indeed, when he was in Carisbrook Castle, one of his uh, jailers, um, a man called Anthony Milmay became very irritated because he, he was saying about how everything was this punishment on him for the execution of Strafford. And he even referred to it, Charles even referred to it when he was on the scaffold. 
I mean, it's possible, of course, you know, there could be a thousand reasons why this figure has ended up in a Northamptonshire field. Um, You know, it could have been just some sort of some noble nobleman had it and dropped it. But it just does seem to be such an extraordinary coincidence. The fine sight is such, you know, there it is. We know Charles's baggage was taken. This is a piece of royal quality. Um, It just does all seem quite fascinating. So Henry Hammond, um, he was clearly quite close to the king, wasn't he, as a a royal chaplain from 1645? Yes, I think he was. And um, so, and he was, he was, he was very, he was very into sort of confession, oral confession and things. Uh, um, And so one, and what, so one wonders indeed if, and uh, of course would have been so aware of Henry VI and all the stories about him, bearing in mind where he was born, um, where he was educated, that um, and and spending this intimate time with Charles during the Civil War, uh, and of course Henry VI had presided, you know, had had been you know, presided over a civil war, and was a rightful king, um, and of course had a strong family link to Charles, because don't forget Charles was directly descended from Henry Tudor, who was Henry VI's nephew. And and then we've also got Henry Hammond's father, haven't we, who was a royal physician to Charles's father, King James I. And obviously, and he is the man who um, bought Chertsey Abbey. So it was even said that Hammond was named after King Charles's brother, Henry. Yes, that's true. Or you, yes, he could have been named after and and but maybe as well, it was a double it was a double um, thing because also it could have even referred back to Henry VI, couldn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's interesting. Yeah. So Henry Hammond began actively supporting the king's cause in 1643. But as you've mentioned there, by 1645, um, he, he's come into prominence. Um, he's present at the peace negotiations at Uxbridge, which came to nothing. But it was after Uxbridge, which was just a few months prior to Naseby, when, when he returned to Oxford and came to prominence with the king, and um, he published some religious writings um, and was appointed a canon. Uh, and then just to just to end the, the Hammond link as well, I mean, yes. you've mentioned that he was present with Charles at Carisbrook um, in, in his captivity uh, at the king's yes. wish. In the king's final days, he bequeaths a copy of Hammond's writings to, to his son, Henry, Duke of Gloucester, which is another sign, isn't it, really? Absolutely, of how close they were and how much you mm. respected, um, how much you respected Hammond. Absolutely. You said as well. We don't know if if Charles the First ever mentioned King Henry the Sixth or Saint Henry. And it could have been a very personal. It could have been a very sort of personal thing. And it's just that after all, it always reminds that he might well wanted to keep this figure, not throw it away, and not have it melted down. Uh, to save it, if it was found in the if, if found in the baggage, or indeed if he if he was um, if indeed if he or or, one, or somebody close to him was wearing it, um, I mean, you would have thought. Of course, if it had been found by any of um, Fairfax's men, uh, they would have um, melted it down for its gold. It obviously it obviously fell off, but 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 then of course the flight was chaotic. So if you're fighting for your life. Uh, as the women were, as the men were, could have gone then. Could have, or even if it was amongst, uh, even if it was amongst the baggage, um, you can imagine um, soldiers, you know, grabbing stuff here and there, 
um, and, um, and 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 missing some things. Mm. And as you you said in your article as well, um, Cromwell actually forbade his troops from plundering, didn't he? It, and and instructed them to get after the king. Yes, he did. He said, you know wait for plunder later of course you know they didn't all obey that i mean they couldn't resist but i mean i suspect you know what happened was you would have you know you, the pl- the pl- plundering as well was as a result quite chaotic as it was they weren't allowed to sort of hang around doing it but you can you know people are human beings you can be sure they were sort of snaffling what they could while they could and again that's another reason why things could have got dropped like oh my god grab grab <laughs> but, I got, but i can't i can't hang around doing this or all the officers are going to get at me um so you know you would um you would snatch things and some things would uh, f- would fall down yeah and and, and get trodden into the, the and earth. get trodden in absolutely mm. absolutely and um yes and it was it was found near a pond i seem to remember yes um and it's and it's obviously lain there for centuries it's extraordinary isn't it really it is fascinating and just so um so intriguing isn't it <laughs> And I think one of the things which is so amazing about this figure, um, whether it was from a reliquary or part of the Tudor crown, is the way it links the story of these two kings and these two civil wars. Of course, both kings died violently. Um, Henry VI was murdered in the tower. Charles always believed he was going to be murdered because that was the usual way to get rid of a, of a fallen king. Um, you know, you would bump him off and then say he died of a head cold or whatever. Um, and, and he was convinced. He, that's one of the reasons he wouldn't take a, he wouldn't, didn't want to have a buddy employed by parliament shaving him. And he had this very bushy beard when he was being tried. He thought he'd be murdered. Um, but in the end, he wasn't murdered. He was, of course, executed, but still a violent death. And... What happened afterwards uh, was, again, quite similar. You have Henry VI being declared a popular saint. He was never declared a saint by the Catholic Church. It was just the English people decided he was a saint. And uh, in the case of Charles I, you have him, I suppose, as well, just more, more consciously shaping himself as a martyr king. He does it on the scaffold. He does it through the, um, his, his, his writings. And um, you know he he he's he's called you know a martyr by the Church of England for you know the next two or three hundred years. Yeah, so many similarities, isn't there? And, and another coincidence um, recently was a, a Boar's badge that was found at Bosworth, so not too far away um, from the Wars of the Roses. There. Yes, absolutely. There was a badge, and another one actually found even more recently in um, the West Country, or a boar. But these, which are which are fabulous finds, fabulous and fascinating, but. Uh, they are not made of gold. They're not sort of gold and rhombossed enameling. They're not these ex- you know, th- of this sort of exquisite quality, um, which you know there were very would have been very few places capable of of doing this form of enameling in England. Very special piece. Um, yeah. And if we just end by looking at the crown jewels, so, you know, you talked about them earlier. Um, what what happened to the crown jewels? Yes, well, the gold was all melted down and turned to coin um, at the mint. Um, and then the pearls and the stones were bagged up and sold over the next couple of years. And, and some of them did survive and were retrieved. 
Um, but there was no mention in the 1649 inventory, that is the inventory after Charles's execution, um, mentioning these three kings, which seems strange, um, but um, possibly they just didn't think they were worth mentioning, um, uh, or maybe they were no longer there. Maybe they were, had indeed been taken off the crown. Okay. Well, a fascinating and tantalising find for sure, you know, no matter what uh, the facts of the matter are. Um, and time might provide us with further evidence, mightn't it? Or Kevin might just find another two kingly figures at Nearsby. That would clinch it. <laughs> yes, no, no, that would be very, that would be that would be interesting. And um, yes, and, and um, many of your followers um, will, will know a great deal, I'm sure, about um, the Battle of uh, Naseby, and they may have uh, views on it as as well um, on on where it was found and the flight path, um, which which would be interesting to hear. Um, so another fascinating subject, I think, which, which listeners will enjoy and it hot off the press as well, because, you know, you've written some articles about it for The Telegraph today and The Times this weekend. Uh, and as you've said earlier, you've got that longer article on your website. Um, so do you, do you want to just share the web address again? Yes, it's uh, leanderdelisle.com. Uh, I know it's a bit of a nightmare name. It's L-E-A-N-D-A-D-E-L-I-S-L-E. Excellent. And and if you haven't listened to episode 12 yet, um, when Leander talked to me about Queen Henrietta Maria, um, that will remain available should you wish to, to go back and catch up. Um, but thank you for, for chatting to me about this amazing artifact, Leander. No, thank you. I very much enjoyed it. And um, I very much enjoyed our um sort of discussions about Henry 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 Hammond as well. Yeah, fascinating, wasn't it? Yeah, I'll, I'll learn a little bit about him. <laughs> Are there any other lines of inquiry maybe that you're looking into with Kevin or...? British Museum, um, the British Museum, you know, are obviously researching it and um, they're the ones who I'm sure will um, eventually come up with, you know, some interesting, interesting views on how it's ended up there mm. and, um, and, and what exactly it is and whether there are indeed any comparable, comparable figures. Are there any comparable figures on European crowns? It'd be interesting to compare to compare the two, you know, to, to sort of, I think, I think if, if I was going to look next, I would be looking, well, two things I would look at, actually, I would look at European crowns, see if there's something similar, and um, perhaps um, looking to see if there's any sort of further details on, um, which I think there are, um, on, on, on the stuff nicked by Henry Mildmay. Yeah. Supposed to be in charge of the crown jewels. So for anybody wanting to read any more about Charles I, um, which which book would you recommend? Well, I hope you might enjoy and perhaps put in a Christmas stocking, um, White King, The Tragedy of Charles I, uh, which is my most recent book, which is now out in paperback. And um, I was very proud that it won the Historical Writers Association uh, Nonfiction Prize. Well, I hope you've enjoyed that latest episode of Cavalier Cast. And as Leander says, if you have any feedback or any particular comments about where the Golden King was found or the Battle of Nearsby, then please do get in touch. It will be great to hear your feedback. Coming next and very soon, we have a Cavalier Cast Christmas special, which won't be cancelled. And a very special 17th century guest will be joining us. Until then, you can contact me on Twitter at 1642author or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Mark Turnbull author. Thanks again for listening.